Thank you, Amber. That's, that's beautiful and a good reminder, actually, of our passage in Titus today of God who cannot lie, but who keeps his promises and who is faithful to those promises. I also have to correct a mistake. When I was introducing the Holsties, I forgot to mention one very important member of the family, and that's Geneva. She was up front with us, and Geneva has been part of our Sunday school lately, and we've been so glad to, to see her there as well. And um, she's, she and uh, Ansley, my middle child, are good friends, so uh, she means a lot to my family as well. So I apologize for that, Geneva, and, and to you all for forgetting her. Also, let me say a thank you to Chris for uh, preaching last week. I thought he did a great job calling us to obedience and holiness. And he didn't realize it, but last week was Pentecost, and he selected the text that has been used in English-speaking churches for Pentecost for the last 500 years. Uh, so one of, something, something odd seemed to be going on there, or, or maybe something not so odd. We, we do believe that might have been God's providence as well. For a long time, my perception of the church was that it was secondary or unimportant, that it was something I could sort of leave behind. I would say things like this, and maybe you've said them. It's not necessary to go to church or be part of a church to be a Christian, which in a certain sense is absolutely true, but in another sense it's quite misleading. See, when we read the New Testament, we are confronted with the idea that the Christian and the church, God's people, they can't be separated. They are inextricably linked. There are no lone wolf Christians in the New Testament. Nobody going out on their own, doing things the way they want to do them, without any influence from other believers or anything like that. Christianity is not, according to the New Testament, simply an individual religion. No, instead, Christianity is a corporate calling. It is a calling to a body, to a corpus. Even in seminary, I have to confess to you, I had a slight disdain for the church. I struggled to fit in with, a particular, with particular churches, and Chelsea and I didn't do a ton of bouncing around, but we bounced around just a little. And, and that, of course, that struggle to fit in would give me an excuse to be less involved or to be absent at times. I can remember several weeks when I thought, well, maybe it would just be best if I stayed home and read my Bible and spent some time in prayer. And I felt that that was completely acceptable for me to know God on my own. Now, now to be sure, you do need a personal relationship with God. It is necessary for you to pursue that relationship on your own. But to remove oneself from the church is unheard of in the New Testament. To have a disdain for the church is unheard of in the New Testament. In fact, it is impossible to practice Christianity alone because if you just think about what the New Testament commands Christians to do, it requires other people. You cannot love one another alone. You cannot forgive one another alone. You can't put up with each other alone. You get the point. And again and again and again, the New Testament reminds us that what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ is to develop these capacities of self-denial and care and love for others. 
So the idea of being a Christian apart from the community, what we call the church, is like trying to get fit without ever going to the gym. Or maybe a better analogy would be, it's like trying to put on a production, a play, without having a theater company to help you out with it. Nobody wants to see one man or one woman plays. Early in my first pastorate, God convicted me and brought me to a place of repentance over my previous views of the church. I guess because I was a pastor and now I needed people to show up, it was very clear to me it's a problem. But that's how God works. He exposes errors in very And he died for her and is purifying her. You too should be for the church. Because Christ died for the church and is purifying her, you too should be for the church. So the mature Christian in the New Testament is the one who deeply values the Christian community, who intentionally commits to a community, who loves and serves that community. This is why, by the way, one of the most serious concerns, and we'll see this when we get to Titus chapter 3 in a few weeks, this is why one of the most serious concerns in the New Testament is those who create dissension and disunity and factions within the church. Because they're not caring for the church. They're harming the church. Now today we're starting a new series in the book of Titus. And I tell you this often, but I I feel like I have to say it again. If you need a table of contents, it's okay. It's a little book. It's back toward the back of the New Testament. If you got to Hebrews or any of the other 1 John, 2 John, you've gone too far. So go backward. Um, Titus. So you've got 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. And that's where we'll be. Paul writes this letter to a young pastor named Titus who is in a difficult ministry context. His job is, as the letter says, to put things in order. That is, to put the church in order, to establish it, to prepare it to be deeply Christian in a society that is decidedly not Christian. Where Titus is located on this island of Crete is uncivil, it is nowhere near, uh, uh, it, it hasn't had any introduction to the Christian faith, so Titus is thrown into that. And I think it's a relevant letter for us today. We're in a post-Christian area. We're still in the south. So the sort of sense of Christianity is still strong here. But at the same time, we're in the area of Richmond. We're in a bigger city, a progressive city. And a city that is rapidly becoming decidedly not Christian. Now, there is something to say before we jump right into our passage about the authorship of this letter here. We can't go into great detail, but I do want to introduce it to you so that you don't feel like I'm hiding it from you. Especially those of you who may be headed off to college or in college, I just want to make sure you hear this from me. This book, along with a lot uh, along with the other so-called pastoral letters, which would include 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, has long been disputed as to whether or not Paul himself actually wrote it. However, the church has received for some uh, 1,500 plus years these letters as written by Paul for, uh, and has received them as authoritative from Paul. And it's on that assumption that I will continue forward, so I'm going to refer to the author as Paul without any sort of problems there. But 
There is a time and a place to have a deeper conversation about this matter so that we're not surprised by questions of who wrote which books and challenges that you may hear even on the History Channel that we don't know or the authorship of certain books. And some of those challenges aren't completely unfounded. Sometimes we need to just face up to the facts. I'm not saying that it causes our faith to be eroded or that we should have any less faith in Scripture, but we need to be aware of them. But for now, I'm simply going to refer to the author as Paul, and I think we can at least say with confidence that this is a letter that has the markings of Paul upon it. And I think Paul did have his hand in it. Before we get into verse 1, let me just state the big idea for you. My hope for the sermon today is that we would see in Paul's opening words the unique identity of the people of God and Paul's concern for their benefit. And I hope that we would come away from here this morning with a more profound sense of what God thinks of the church and how we should think of the church. So let's look at Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now, I want you to notice the two ways Paul identifies himself. First, he says he is a servant of God. The scholars debate this word servant, and your translations may say different things. You may even have a footnote like mine that says slave in the bottom. The reason they debate it is because this Greek word, in a way, servant is a bit too weak. But for our place in history, it probably works just fine because even being a servant in our culture seems like a lowly position. But to be clear, Paul isn't just using a term for minister or the the term that sometimes pops up as deacon that is often translated as servant in certain places. The term he uses here typically refers to a household slave or to a household servant, someone who is actually connected to a house in service. And in many of Paul's letters, he identifies himself this way, as a servant or a slave of God or of Jesus Christ. Other authors in the New Testament do this as well. James, the half-brother of Jesus, opens his letter with this word, and so does Jude. So we have to ask the question, why do so many New Testament writers identify themselves not as apostles first and foremost, not as great preachers or not as people who knew Jesus or learned from Jesus, but as servants of the Most High God and as servants of Jesus Christ? The answer is because the Christian life is one of relinquishing self, of self-denial, taking up the pattern of Christ in suffering and becoming a servant. It is to follow Jesus' pattern of service, to become more like him, to be conformed to his image. Jesus says it this way. I'll just give you two examples because he says it all over the place. But he says, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross. Or elsewhere, he puts it this way. Whoever wants to be first among you must be a servant to all. So this idea of service or servanthood is deeply embedded in what it means to be a mature Christian. So it's not surprising at all that Paul and James and Jude would identify themselves as servants of God. Second, 
Paul calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostles in the New Testament are those who witnessed the resurrected Christ. Paul's experience of that had, of course, occurred on the road to Damascus. And with that witness came a commission to preach the gospel. That's his apostleship. You have seen something that not everyone sees. Your job is to preach the gospel. But he doesn't go around preaching for personal gain or for accolades. He's long since abandoned all of that. He has relinquished all of that because he is a servant of the Most High God. Instead, he preaches because God has stamped him and given him a task for the sake of God's people. Actually, you see that in the next part of the verse. Look at the next part. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. Let's talk about what this means. Paul does all of this for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, we hear this word elect, and that's where we've got to spend some time talking about it. Because when you say it, it scares people. And maybe all your translations don't have it, but I'm not really sure what other word you would choose. Elect simply refers to a choice, and the way the Bible uses this term is as a designation for God's people. So Christian, your identity is that you are God's chosen one. You are chosen and beloved by God. You're not an outcast or thrown aside by God. In fact, you were that. You once were not a people, as First Peter says, but now you are a people. You are God's people. You know, I grew up never hearing this term used. I don't know, maybe that's true for you, too, that you had to come across elect in the Bible for yourself. It's not actually how I came across it. I'll tell you how I came across it in a second. But the Christian movements I was part of were insistent that they were Bible-teaching, Bible-believing, Bible-thumping churches. And the first time I heard the term, I was horrified. I heard it in college, my freshman year. And as soon as I heard it, the radar in my head went off and said, what is this term elect? I, I hear the implication. There's a problem here. I said, no way. No way. What's all this nonsense about choice and election? That's not my God. Those words actually came out of my mouth. And indeed, it wasn't my God. And now in my esteemed old age, I can see how those words actually indicted myself. By saying that isn't my God, I was saying I'm unwilling to let God be God. I'm unwilling to let God be sovereign. That I think far more about my ability and my freedom than about God's ability and his freedom. Now, there's no avoiding this language when one reads the Bible. It's everywhere. God chooses Israel, then he chooses the church. That sentence alone, let me repeat it. God chooses Israel then God chooses the church, that sentence alone should take our breath away because it, it, it should strike awe in us. Now, some of you know, especially those of you who have seminary training, and unfortunately it seems to be a pattern, we're getting more of them in our church. No knock against John here, but, but we did pick up another reverend and it makes my job that much harder because they all want to critique, right? You know, we have so many of you who are trained in this way, and, and I know your antennas are up right now. You know we could pull the lever and do a deep dive into this. And you did in your theology classes. 
And while I think that can be a useful exercise, and I think it can be a fun conversation, and a way to think about the magnitude of God's sovereignty, and how God works in our world, and what it might mean for us to actually be saved, and, and, and to think about God's goodness, and, and it's a way to think about the church, and our identity, and all of that should lead to complete awe and praise, I'm really not interested in giving you some sort of theological lesson this morning. My only concern for you this morning is that you would see the unique status the living God has placed on his people. So whatever you make of this word, and the best minds in Christian history have wrestled with this term and struggled to formulate it and put it together and and, and make sense out of how it all works in the grand scheme of things. But however you understand this term, the only thing I want you to take away is that when the Bible speaks about the identity of a Christian, the identity of the church, it speaks of them as God's chosen people. God set his affection on the church. Their virtue didn't win them a seat at the table. My virtue didn't win me a seat at the table. Going to seminary didn't do me any good before a holy God. God's goodness was made known to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that granted us a seat at the table. You might even think about it this way. Why are you a Christian and some of your best friends and some of your closest family members aren't? Is it because you're you're any more wise or more intelligent or smarter or, or, or that you somehow figured it out and they didn't and they just need to be more like you or, or that you're holier? No. It's all God's goodness. You see that. That's the only point I want you to take away. That here we have, in just a little word, this idea that God's goodness is on full display in how He sets His affection on the church. And God's faithfulness makes this so. It's out of His character. You see, before time began, the triune God formed a plan in His infinite wisdom to redeem His people. He did that in Israel on the basis of His promise to Abram. And now, you know what? He's doing it in Africa and China and Mexico and Chicago and Atlanta and yes, even in Richmond on the basis of that very same promise made in Genesis 12 to a man named Abram that I will bless all the families of the earth in you. That was God's choice. And it is God's choice that is still continuing to redeem His creation today. So however we formulate the particular nuances of salvation, I just want you to see that God is redeeming a people for Himself in every part of our world, and He is doing that on the basis of His good character. And those people, those elect ones... Chosen ones are what we call the church. So if you are in Christ, let's not overcomplicate this, you are in this category. And that is good news. Some of you may need to hear that because some of you have been rejected in other areas of your life or you feel rejected or you've got wounds, whatever it is, you might need to simply hear that your identity in Christ means you are beloved and chosen by And that is incredibly good news, whatever situation you find yourself in this morning. That God was more at work in your life than you may have even realized. Some have, after all, called him the hound of heaven. He pursues us. 
pursuing his people with an intentionality and a calculation that the greatest theological minds have never been able to wrap their heads around. And friends, let's not miss this point either and turn this into some pure individualism. But let's not also miss the point that God's individual calling on your life is nothing to make light of. If God has called you out of the world into his church, that is nothing to make light of. That is a big deal. That the God who brought all things into existence would call you to be part of his people. And that's what Paul knows, by the way. His whole life was radically changed by God's decisive action toward him. You remember the story, I imagine. In Acts 9, we encounter it for the first time. The risen Jesus shows up as Paul is on his way to persecute Christians on the road to Damascus. And he says, Jesus says, I have a plan for you. I have set my affection on you and I'm going to do something with you. Then, of course, he instructs Ananias, another believer, to meet with Paul, and Ananias doesn't want to do it. He says, Lord, you know Paul's reputation. He kills guys like me. I don't want to go there. And then there's this verse that just ties all of this together in Acts 9, 15. Go, for he is, in, he is an instrument whom I have chosen. That's our same word, by the way, or a related word. One's a noun, one's a verb. But, but it's related. To bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. That's Paul's experience of God's saving grace. And his purpose as an apostle was to continue serving God's people. Now look again at verse 1. I know we're wringing this thing dry, but that's why we're only going four verses this morning. He has been called to this for the sake of the faith of the elect and for their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. The main thrust of the letter to Titus concerns sound doctrine or sound teaching. That's the whole series that we'll be doing in Titus through the end of June. This idea of healthy teaching or sound teaching, sound doctrine, however you translate it. That's the point of the whole letter. So when Paul refers to their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, he's setting up the entire letter. He's saying the whole point I'm writing to you is because this is what we are about. He's reminding Titus of what he's about, and he's reminding Titus of why he's in Crete, why Titus himself is in Crete. Christianity begins with grasping the content of our faith, what we call the truth. After all, you can't believe in Jesus rightly if you don't know anything about him or if you don't know who he claims to be. There's a strange idea that sometimes is floating around and I think in sometimes in our circles that we just need to do stuff and leave all the doctrinal mess for academics. We just need to get on our way doing things and forget about all those things like Trinity and, 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 and uh, atonement and, and eschatology and all these big words that we don't want to think about. And, and maybe we've seen some of that here. You know, we, we have had, as evidence of that, an emphasis on projects accomplished and numbers gathered. But maybe that's where we're off. Notice that's not what Paul says here. He says his job is to increase their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. 
And by the way, if you read any of Paul's other letters, he prays this numerous times. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be open, that you would grasp what God has done in Christ, that you would have knowledge to understand. See all these cognitive terms. They're not just cognitive, though, and that, that's clear in this verse. That's not the end game. This knowledge of the truth leads to godliness or to holiness. So having an understanding of the Trinity and the Gospel, yeah, is necessary for every believer. But if such knowledge never produces fruit, that is godliness, it is not what the Bible calls knowledge or understanding. But neither can we simply skip over the knowledge. A part of the reason we're doing a series on Titus is because I believe we desperately need to shore up our beliefs. Not because our church is in a particular, particularly bad way here, although I think most Baptist churches need to work on this to some degree, but also because we are entering into a cultural moment where it is increasingly necessary for Christians to understand what we believe. I think this has been a problem or a neglected area in many Baptist churches. And I, and I have my reasons, I think this, I have my hypotheses as to why. You know, why, why don't we talk about what Christians believe? Well, one, it's hard. It makes people's heads spin. It feels like school. So we don't always like that. In my former church once, I was teaching on the Trinity, and I had a man say to me, isn't it better just to believe this and not really worry about trying to figure it out? And I was thinking, how do you do that? How, how do you believe something you don't understand and you don't know? But that seems to be a sentiment. Or, or number two, we might lose people. That's our fear, that if we go too deep and too hard, we might lose them. And what they really want to hear is like six tips for better finances or better relationships. You already know, I don't believe that. I don't believe that's what we need to preach. I don't actually call it preaching. I'll get to that in a minute. And number three... We don't want to seem rigorous or hard-nosed or fundamentalist or too tight. So we're afraid of these things sometimes. But listen, we can't skip this step for the sake of their knowledge of the truth. We have to know. We have to go deep here. And you know what? I say this to you after only seven months, but I think I can say it. I have all the faith in the world in you. You sitting in the pews, you on vacation, you watching on the video, have all the faith in the world in Monument Heights. You are ready for this. In fact, I think you're hungry for this. You want this deep dive. You want to go deeper than you've ever gone before. You desire depth. And I really do believe this is what the Lord is up to here at Monument Heights. And I don't mean this arrogantly, but I resonate with Titus because I feel that my calling is very similar. To put things in order by teaching sound doctrine. And this is the direction, of course, we are shifting toward. I don't usually try to hide things from you. As I've been saying publicly to the church over the last few weeks, and to staff members, and to various committees, and to individual leaders, we need to focus on being more doctrinally sound. We need to go deeper. And people sometimes want to know my vision for the church. After all, I, I was hired for that task, was I not? I was pretty clear at the beginning anyway. Here's my vision. As a church renewal strategy, I believe this is ground zero. We have the pattern here in Titus. Paul has tasked Titus with this very thing. Set things in order by teaching sound doctrine. 
And again, I don't mean it to be arrogant, but the task before us is something of a miniature reformation. In the Reformation, the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church had obliterated sound doctrine. What the Reformers had to do is, is they had to come in and they had to return to Scripture. And they had to say, you know what, that piece over there looks like tradition and doesn't look like it's founded in Scripture, so we're going to reject it and we're going to do it like this. And then Baptists, by the way, are the true sons and daughters of the Reformation because we took it even further. And we were willing to challenge every single bit of the tradition down to the very end. And so we must do the same out of honor for our forefathers in our Baptist faith. We must do the same in our cultural moment. You know, our identity is complex. You know, in some ways, Virginia Baptists are complex like this. We're, we're one part evangelical Southern Baptist. Then on the other hand, we're, we're sort of this mainline church that is a lot of Virginia Baptist. And all of that is fine. You can talk about identities, but I don't think either one of them do it that well. I think what we need to think about is how do we get back to being a church that is resonating with Paul's words here for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. And so as a game plan going forward, I'm putting all my chips in here. You didn't know pastors gambled, did you? Uh, the church is bleeding younger generations. We gamble on church things, that's fine. Uh, the church is bleeding younger generations. We know that. Look at the statistics. that we, We've seen them, we're aware of them. The mainline movement has been declining for the last 43 years every single year. That's just one tip. Evangelicals have their own stats. I am absolutely convinced that it's not because we're too heavy on doctrine or that we're too deep. That's not why we're bleeding younger generations. It's because we've been too shallow. Our convictions have been too weak. We've offered no challenge whatsoever. For evidence, only look at our practice of church membership or our lack of church discipline. Not that we ever want to practice it, but it needs to be a viable option because Scripture tells us it's important. Or take another example. In my view, it is entirely unacceptable for our children and teenagers to know little to know more of the Christian faith than that God loves them or that they should try to live good lives. They're getting wrecked when they get out into the world because they don't have any depth. They are the very plants that Jesus talked about when He said they don't have the depth of soil and as soon as the sun hits them, they're scorched. And we see it constantly. That is a failure on the part of the church. What we have in the Christian faith is breathtaking. There's nothing else like it. And it calls us out into the deep things of God. It calls us to be a radically reformed community around the good news of Jesus. And that's what we have to offer the people around us. A deep plunge into the things of God as they have been made known to us in Christ. It is that that has sustained Christians through persecution and through plague. It is that that has allowed Christians to leave home and country and families and goods and prosperity to give their very lives for the gospel because they've known God and they have known Him deeper than they could ever imagine. Notice that's exactly the sort of thing Paul is talking about as we wrap up these last few verses here, verses 2 and 3. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, 
And at the proper time, verse 3, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. This is a summary statement of our faith. It's one of three in the letter, and they're all gorgeous summary statements. But this statement is the foundation for everything Paul is about to say. It's a bedrock for sound doctrine. It is the grounding for the church. And if this is lost, if we overlook it, then the church simply has no message and nothing to offer. The church can't be the church without understanding this. So let's look at what Paul says, verse 2. In hope of eternal life. This connects back to the godliness. Why, why be godly? Why be holy? Because this life is not the end and we have a long view of things. Some people say this world is all there is, and if that's true, then everything is essentially meaningless. And that's fine if you fall back on that as a philosophical position, but the Christian position says there's more, and there is hope because there is more. The Bible talks about that hope as eternal life, which doesn't just mean living forever. That's part of it. But the real thrust of this phrase, eternal life, is coming to share in God's character, His eternal life, having God's abundant life within ourselves, being united to Him, being caught up in God's very own life and being in perfect union and harmony with the triune God, having His character and being conformed to who He is. And God planned this, according to this passage, long before the ages began. And since God does not lie, we know He will make good on His promises. And so He does. That's verse 3. At the proper time, He makes it known in the work of Christ. And the work of Christ is then proclaimed in preaching, according to verse 3. Paul has been entrusted with that. This is what we call the gospel, preaching the gospel. And if I have to give you a simple one-sentence summary of what I mean by that and what the New Testament, I think, means by the, I would say it this way. The gospel is the announcement that God has acted in Christ to redeem His creation from sin, Satan, and death. It's an announcement of what God has done. And Paul says his task is to preach that. And here we learn something about preaching. Preaching a task that's not just given to Paul, but is given to the church. Not just given to me, but is given to all of us. And it's our posture toward the world. Preaching is proclamation. It's announcement. It is saying, here is what God has done in Christ. Preaching is not a talk. It's not giving lessons in moral living. It's not a clever show or theater. Preaching is an announcement that the real king has taken the throne. Not only is Paul entrusted with that message, as I've said, so are we. So what does that mean for us? That means all this talk about doctrine is highly important. We cannot simply set loose with the faith. We cannot be content to jettison knowledge and doctrine for everything else. If we don't have sound teaching, we won't have healthy growth. So we have a duty. We have an obligation as individuals to press into sound knowledge of our faith. We have an obligation as a church to care enough about this church to long for sound teaching, to demand it, in fact, to stand firmly there and to reject that which is false. That is the first step in mimicking Paul and being obedient. Our actions must be for the sake of the church, and being for the sake of the church means caring about their growth in knowledge. And knowing God and their growth in holiness. 
To be a Christian means to be called to participate in the body of Christ. And as Paul says elsewhere, no one in their right mind harms their own body. Therefore, we have a responsibility to push deeper into health by emphasizing sound doctrine. And our leaders in particular, talking to deacons now and Sunday school teachers and other teachers and other pastoral staff, our leaders in particular have this responsibility. We'll see some more of that next week. And my job, and by the way, this is daunting and overwhelming and far beyond my capabilities, is not to have a church of X number of people. It is to preach with sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. This isn't to stoke my ego or make much of me. The point is for the sake of the church. So the church might be healthy and pleasing to God. So here at Monument Heights, this is where we must begin. We begin by rallying around this common faith that has been handed down to us. Let me just close with verse 4. To Titus, my true child, in a common, see that common faith, it's something we share, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Even our relationships are changed by this common faith. See, we're not merely a group of people with similar interests. We didn't log on to meetup.com this morning and say, I want to find a bunch of people who want to listen to a guy in a suit stand up and talk about the Bible. It's not how you got here, is it? We are here because God called us out of the world into a corporate body. We are the people of God, co-heirs with Christ, priest to our God and King. That should change the way we feel about every single person sitting in this room with us this morning and every single person on our membership roll. Here's my final word for us. Take inventory of how you feel about the church. Can you truly say you are for the church? The simple fact is that our surrounding culture has made every single one of us consumers. It's why we go to the grocery store and stand in the orange juice aisle and look at 20 different orange juices for 15 minutes trying to figure out which one we want to pick. And we pick one, and when it doesn't satisfy us, we write a nasty review online letting everyone else know how nasty that orange juice is and we go somewhere else. The problem is we sometimes bring that attitude into the church. It doesn't meet my expectations. It doesn't meet my needs. It doesn't stroke my ego. The thing you need to look for in a church, is it concerned with sound doctrine? Is it concerned with your growth as a believer? Is it concerned with your knowledge of the truth, with your holiness? Those are the first matters. In fact, the Reformers said that's what makes a church. The right preaching of God's Word. The right administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And in some cases, they would add a third one church discipline, meaning we are held to account to each other in holiness and godliness. And so we can't treat the Christian or the church as a consumer product. Part of being a maturing Christian is learning not to treat the church as a product to be consumed, but as a community to which you are called as a believer. So yes, the church is here to nurture your faith, but you are also called to be for the church. You are here to serve and love the church. You have a role to play. And in order for us to move forward in renewal, we must resolve to be for the church. And that begins with a commitment to sound doctrine that leads to godliness. Let's pray together.
Lord, we are always deeply convicted when we spend time under the searching light of your word. Lord, we give you thanks for that conviction because we know that it is out of your love, that it is evidence of your affection for us, that you would bring us under discipline, that you would challenge us, that you would stir us, that you would cause us to be broken over those things that we are doing that are not in accord with your word. And Lord, as I've already confessed, I give you thanks for doing that in my own life and pray that you would continue to do so. Lord, I pray for those in this church that you would give them a deep love, not for the traditions, not for the structure, not for any of the things that aren't actually the church, but that you would give us a deep love for this congregation. You would give us a deep love for the health of this congregation. And above all, Lord, we pray that you would give us a deep desire to see your name glorified and to see the gospel proclaimed. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the endurance and the steely spines to stand there and to hold our ground when it is necessary. Lord, I pray that you would give us the mindset we need. Even two weeks ago, I prayed that we would be aware that we are in a cosmic struggle, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And so, Lord, I pray that you would remind us that our great offensive weapon there is the Word of God. And I pray that you would teach us and train us, as David prayed in Psalms, that you would train our arms for war, that you would train us to take up the sword, to take up Scripture, and to be faithful, and to be completely altered and reformed around your word. You would conform us and change us, and that this wouldn't be for knowledge alone, but it would be for holiness. And so I pray for that longing as well, that we would long to be holy and pleasing to you, not just as individuals, but as an entire congregation. And Lord, if there's any here who does not yet rest in the gospel of our Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open their eyes that they might see and that you might bring them into your community and into your people. We pray these things in his name. He has opened the door for us to come to you in prayer. In the name of Jesus, amen.